Everybody else, please take out a copy of God's Word and turn in it to John chapter 12. This morning we're going to be in John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. You can find that on page 899 in the Pew Bible there in front of you. John 12, 20 through 26. I have not yet in the last three weeks said what I say for many of the chapters of Scripture. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I say that a lot. I haven't yet said that for John chapter 12, but I'm coming around. I've realized that I think I've tended to overlook John chapter 12. We love John 1 and 3 and 4 and 6 and 10 and 11. I'm really starting to love John chapter 12. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. So there we go. I said it. Why is that? Well, we have now seen the anointing. And then we've seen the entering, we have considered worship, and then the object of our worship, the king. And we've considered the unexpected, often missed nature of that king. Right, well, what is, what's next? Well, hard things are next, glorious things. And we're going to see that the way to the glorious things is through the hard things. What am I talking about? That is a good question. I have people who complain both that I move too slowly through a book and that I move too quickly uh, through a book. Right? So some have the idea that six weeks to get through one chapter is absurdly long. To some, the idea that I'll take six weeks to get through one chapter is just absurdly short. Okay, we're going to try to meet somewhere in the middle. When I get to a passage like this one, though, I'm inclined to agree with the latter. How can we not take a week or more on each of verses 23, 24, 25, and 26? We can't, was my conclusion. So, we're going to take two weeks on this text. This is a compromise. You want one sermon on this text, I want four. We're going to meet in the middle, and we're going to do two sermons on this text. There is so much here, and it is so important. We could camp here for a long time and talk about many things, but I want to stick to our theme and the main thing. Our sermon from verses 1 through 11 was titled, Oh, Worship the King. Our sermon last week on 12 through 19 was the coming king. Here, I think, is the big idea in the rest of chapter 12. The coming king is the dying king. The coming king is the dying king. We saw last week that the celebrating crowd entirely misunderstood the Messiah. And in misunderstanding the Messiah, they entirely missed the Messiah. And so now, on the heels of the absurd spectacle of the so-called triumphal entry, the coming king becomes here the revealing king. The crowds have missed who this king is and what he has come to do. Well, here Christ the king teaches us very clearly who he is and what he has come to do. He has come to die. That is what he has entered into Jerusalem To do. That is why he has entered in the way that he did. There's scene and spectacle, pomp and circumstance, crazy, crying, crowning crowds. The king of Israel. Now the religious authorities have to kill Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus desires. For the singular mission and purpose of his life is his death. He lives to die. Remember, we began last week seeing that he is the king of control. He is orchestrating and directing everything that is happening here. 
And so now Jesus begins to, to start to lay that out for us more clearly. Here he is telling us who he is and what he has come to do. But as we saw last week, he's, he is the king, and you bow down to kings. You submit to kings. You listen to kings. And you follow kings. You don't get to decide what the king is like and what he does. You don't get to set the terms for how you will follow him. And so the question before us this morning is, do you know Christ as king, Christ as the dying king, as he reveals himself here? And are you following him in the way that he calls you to here? For, for I know, I know that there are people in this room who believe that they are following Jesus and they are not. It's just, it's just statistics. Matthew seven fourteen, Jesus says, for the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Those are serious, sobering words. And this hard passage makes that clear. Verse 24, Jesus says, you must die. Verse 25, Jesus says, you must hate your life in this world. Verse 26, you must serve me. 26 again, you must follow me. There could not be a call more counter our current cultural moment. And so in this text where Christ reveals himself as the dying king, he then moves immediately into explaining what it will look like to follow him, the dying king. And thus the title of our sermon is The Dying Disciples of the Dying King. This is a very clear and very difficult look at what it looks like to follow Jesus, to have faith and to be a Christian. It may not look much like what we tend to think it is. So I have three points for us this morning, uh, three headings, quite simply. We're going to look at desire, death, and we're going to see how those two things make a disciple. Desire, death, disciple. And death is at the center of all of this. Death is at the center of life, and death is at the center of the Christian life. So point number one, we're going to start and see that desire, a disciple desires the king. I think that's going to be important. We want to start there. Then point number two, death. We will see that a disciple is dependent on the death of the king. And then point number three, disciple, a disciple is dependent on the death of the self. And then we're going to come back next week and really expand upon point three, where Jesus says a disciple hates his life. A disciple serves Jesus. A disciple follows Jesus. We just need to take a week to look at that. So are you a dying disciple of the dying king? One commentator says that we arrive now at one of the most profound and most demanding sections of the gospel. There are depths here that defy all sounding, and death is at the center of all of it. So let me read it for you. John chapter 12, short passage. Very important. John 12, verses 20 through 26. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world 
will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you would bow with me, let's pause. Let's take a moment. Uh, Let's ask for the Lord's help in this time. Father, there are some hard and heavy words you have given to us here this morning. Father, these these are your words. These are the words that the one that we claim to follow speaks to us about what it looks like to follow him. I pray that you would help us to hear and heed these words. I pray that you would show us first how good and glorious this king is. How he has revealed his grace and his glory and his love to us so clearly in coming to die for us. But Father, we are so often caught up and consumed with ourselves. So often focused on our our will and our desires and ourself. Father, help us to be more and more consumed by Christ. Focused on him and desirous of him. Father, I cannot do this. We cannot do this in and for ourselves. But we know that you, by the power of your spirit working through your word, can. And so we ask now that you would work. Show us Christ. Help us to desire him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So point number one, we do start with desire. A disciple desires the king. Why desire? Well, let's look at the text. Context first. Verse 20 tells us that now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So the feast we know by now is Passover. We saw it back in chapter 12, verse 1. John has been belaboring the point that the Passover is our context. And that's going to color everything that follows because remember, Passover is about death. This king is about death. But we're first considering the desire. We see there also that Passover is also about worship. We have considered that worship serves. We're going to see more on that in verse 26. Worship adores. That's basically our point here. And worship sacrifices. That will be our third point and next week. But what's interesting here is that those who are coming to worship at this feast in verse 20, this Jewish feast, were Greeks. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that they were literally from the country of Greece, but the term Greeks at the time was often synonymous with the term Gentiles. A Greek was any non-Jew. In other words, a Greek, the Greeks were the nations or the world. Don't forget verse 19, the verse that directly precedes our verse and what the Pharisees said there. The Pharisees were witnessing the spectacle of the crowds going crazy, proclaiming Christ the King. We saw how with the waving of palm branches, probably shouldn't use those, uh, the crowds were proclaiming him as their political king. Those were a very specific symbol. Here's our military, political, conquering king come in to uh, wipe out the Romans. So they want their kingdom restored and the Romans gone. But that's not who Christ is. That's not why he has come. And so he gets on a donkey. Symbolic of humility and peace. And he rides in an unexpected king. Submitting himself to the spectacle of their false selfish praise. To to force the issue to bring about his own death. Which will be point two. But the Pharisees are watching all this and they don't understand it at all. They just see the crowd. They see the crazy and they cry out, the world has gone after him. And as is often the case in John, they say more than they know. 
As in the very next verse, we see the world in the Greeks going after Jesus. So we're starting to see this this redemptive historical shift. The crowd, in seeking to redefine the king, are ultimately rejecting the king. In casting him as their political king, they are ultimately casting off the king. Remember, John has prepared us for this from the beginning. Back all the way in 121, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, John 3.16, here we see God so loving the world, the nations. The gospel is going forth to those nations. And so, the nations are coming. The Greeks come. And then in verse 21, we see that they first come to Philip, who John goes out of his way to tell us was from Bethsaida, in Galilee. Why did they go to Philip? I don't know. I'm really not sure. We're not entirely sure. Philip and Andrew, verse 22, are the only two of the disciples who have Greek names. So maybe um, they have some more connection or familiarity with the Greeks. Some commentators assume that John mentions where Philip is from because that's up north. He would have lived bordering what was called the Decapolis, that is Greek, Ten cities. It was a Gentile Greek area. So Philip probably spoke Greek. Maybe they were aware of him. Again, we just we don't know the specifics. But we do know what they want, what they desire. And here's our point. Look at the, what the Greek says. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Or you just can't quite top the King James here. Uh, we would see Jesus. I love that. Lots of pulpits will have it. We should do something like this. A lot of pulpit will have like a tag or a note or something on the pulpit that only I can see and that you can't see. And it will say something like, we would see Jesus. That's, that's the whole point of everything. They want, they wish, they desire to see Jesus. The Greek word just means to, to will or to wish Will in the sense of to resolve or determine or purpose. Right? To, to wish is, is to determine that something is good. You've set your mind on it. Right? That's a good thing. You are desirous of that thing. And now you are resolved to get it and gain it. That's what desire is. The next use of this same Greek word is in John fifteen seven, where Jesus will say, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. And it will be done for you. Whatever you wish is that same word. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We are a wishing people. We are desiring creatures. We are created by God for God. We have obnoxious word alert. We have a teleology. A a telos is just an end or a goal or a purpose. We are created with And for a purpose, we do not get to determine and define what that is. God creates us for himself to know him and be known by him. Augustine's famous line from his confessions is helpful here. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So if we have restless hearts... Well, it's because we're not seeking and finding that rest in Him. For He is what we were created for. He is what we were created to desire and delight in. And so we were created to be moving toward Him, 
pursuing Him, desiring Him. And when we don't, which is all that sin is, when we don't, it's not that we stop moving and pursuing and desiring. It's simply that we start moving, pursuing, and desiring something other than Him. Something that we have sinfully and stupidly determined will fulfill and satisfy us and bring about our good and make us happy. That's what we're always doing all the time. We are always desiring and always then pursuing that thing that we desire. The philosopher Blaise Pascal has a famous line, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, it all tends to this same end. The will, and that's what desires, the will never takes the least step but to this object, happiness. You never do anything. You never pursue anything, choose anything, think anything, except that you believe that thing will ultimately in some way bring about your happiness. Desire. We are all of us always setting our mind on something that we have decided is good. We then start to desire that thing and then we pursue it, thinking that it will bring us what we want. Everyone desires Disciples desire Jesus. I think it's important for us to start here. We're too familiar with the word faith. Love has lost any real meaning. Belief has become little more than belief about. The whole point of this book is faith. These are written that you might believe. What is that? What does that really look like? Well, it could be helpful for us to see that it looks like desire. We are desiring things, always doing what we desire. So, what do you desire? I honestly, what do you wish for? What do you daydream about? None of us like to admit. We're, like, we're adults. We're grown-ups. We don't daydream. Yes, you do. We all do. We have stupid daydreams that we think about and we wish up. I've shared before that I used to have a recurring daydream, used to kind of hope, I've learned, I think this has probably have not been helpful, I'm having to fight and kill it. But this daydream that I used to always have was that I actually write a book. It's a dream. It's not going to happen. But then people actually read it. Lots of people. A Christian book actually read by non-Christians. The next C.S. Lewis, David, that's going to be me, the next C.S. Lewis. Lewis has, his books have sold 200 million copies. Mine would, of course, sell millions of copies. Also making millions of dollars, all to the glory of God. (laughs) Of course, of course, right? You've got something stupid like that. It's not just me. That dream reveals something about my desires. It reveals something about my heart and about my life and what I actually really love and live for. Comfort, ease, fame, being recognized. What do you daydream about? A boy? A girl? A job? A raise? A vacation? What is it? Those daydreams reveal much about what you desire and what you love. Disciples desire Jesus. And I have shared before my concern on this point, both personally and corporately. I've shared how hard the Psalms are for me to read sometimes. I just read Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I mean, is that true of us? 
I mean, in, in any way. Not perfectly, of course. I know that. That's not what I'm saying. We will always wrestle and struggle with competing desires as indwelling sin wars against us. But is there a progress and a growth and a movement toward this discipleship fact? Disciples desire Jesus. Do you desire Jesus? I mean, honestly. Matthew Henry writes on this verse, The great desire of our souls should be to see Jesus, to have our acquaintance with Him increased, our dependence on Him encouraged, our conformity to Him carried on, to see Him as ours, to keep up communion with Him, derive communications of grace from Him. We miss our end, our purpose, our goal, if we do not see Jesus. You see, you miss the very thing that you were designed for if you do not see and desire Jesus. Do you desire to see Jesus? Is He what you are pursuing? Is He what gets your time and attention, your thought and affection? Do you love Him and long to see Him? For that was the Greeks' request. We would see Jesus. That's their desire. Now, here's an interesting question. Does Jesus reply to their request? Does he do what they desire? Do they see Jesus? Point number two. This is really well done on John and Jesus' part. Point number two is death. A disciple is dependent on the death of the king. Look at the text. 22, Philip goes and gets Andrew. They go together and tell Jesus. Why do they go get Andrew? Again, I don't know. Uh, we only see Andrew three times. We've talked about this. And each time Andrew is bringing people to Jesus. All right, so that's, that's a good thing. We need more Andrews. Worship witnesses. But for now, look at verse 23. They have said we wish to see Jesus. Jesus is told they wish to see Jesus. Jesus' response, 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Stop. What? <laughs> Not... We wish to see Jesus, yes, of course, right away. Let the Greeks come to me. Not, nope, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How is that a response to their request? Is that an answer? Yes, of course. It's a brilliant and beautiful answer. Now, listen, the text doesn't tell us clearly whether the Greeks actually met with Jesus or not. Grammatically, it seems that Jesus' words in verse 23 are to Philip and Andrew. But if you look down at verses 29 and 34, we also see that the crowd is somewhat around and, and still kind of overhearing what Jesus is saying, primarily to his disciples, but they're overhearing it. So were the Greeks there too? Maybe, probably. We just don't know. And it's not the point. The crowd has just seen Jesus and not actually seen him at all. They saw what they wanted to see, what they desired to see, and they missed the Messiah. Matthew 13, 13, seeing they do not see. Now, here are these Greeks saying, we want to see Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you want to see me. You have to see me in my glory. Okay, great. We love glory. We talked last week about our spectacle obsession. We love big and loud and showy and flashy and extravagant. 
I could have, still can't hear from last night or the music was so loud. Can you guys hear me? The triumphal entry, just sure, it looks like glory. It's big, it's loud, it's extravagant. We love glory. But Jesus clarifies, and he is painfully clear. Verse 24. Here's the main thing. Don't miss this thing. This is the point. He has just said glory, and now he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We want to see Jesus, see me as I am in my glory, see my glory in my death. And so does Jesus answer their question? Absolutely, he does. But not in the way that we'd expect. Not in the way that we'd want. They want to see Jesus... And he really ultimately answers by showing them the cross. For there is no other way to see Jesus. That is where he is seen. That is where his glory is revealed first and foremost in his death. The coming king is the dying king. If you do not see him as that, if you do not desire him as that, then you do not see and desire him at all. Three times, Jesus has said, up until this point, my hour has not yet come. Twice, John has said that the authorities were not able to lay hands on Jesus, for his hour had not yet come. Now it has. And we've got to strive to see the beautiful uh, tension between verse 23 and verse 24, and how important Christ's answer is for our life. It is our life. Here's what I mean when I say that the way to the glorious things is only through the hard things. The way to life is only through death. We understand the illustration that he's using, the metaphor in verse 24, right? We may be city folks, but it's not all that complicated. A grain of wheat, a seed. We don't have any wheat around here. Let's consider an acorn. We do have trees, a couple of them at least. Um, But you have this tiny little acorn, maybe an inch long. I'm not a tree expert, so is that an arborist? What is that? I had to look all this up. But you have this thing that's like an inch long, and as long as it stays connected to the tree, onto the tree alive, nothing happens. But when it's disconnected from the life, when it falls, it dies, and it finds its way into the ground, it grows, and it bears much fruit. this This is magic. Out of this one tiny little thing, this acorn, can come a tree of upwards of a hundred feet tall with a branch spread uh, even larger. Large oaks can produce 10,000 acorns a year. Some can live hundreds of years. Estimates are upwards of 10 million acorns over the span of an oak tree's life. All of that from one tiny little acorn, one little seed, one acorn, 10 million acorns. That's fruitfulness. That's a lot of life. All a result of death. And so Jesus is taking this very basic principle and now applying it to the Christian life. The way to life is only through death. And this is a hard lesson for us to learn. For, now how, for no matter how long we've been at this, no matter how mature we think we may be, we all of us still have this lingering desire and sometimes subconscious assumption that things are supposed to be easy. The, you know, the good life 
the glorious life. It's supposed to be the comfortable life. It's supposed to be the life at ease. We want the way to life to be through life. And Jesus is here brutally divesting us of any such foolish ideas in laying out for us this basic fundamental principle of the Christian life. But he starts off first by applying that principle to himself. Verse 24 is first and foremost about Jesus the King. And again, we're just too familiar with this. We need to understand how absurd this seems to basically everyone. Don't let over-familiarity dull you to the scandal of what Jesus is saying here. We've talked a lot about glory. Glory is the, the manifest, uh, manifestation of majesty. Glory is showing and shining forth greatness. It's greatness, power, beauty on display. We talked last week about how Caesars were glorious in their grand triumphal entries. 1988 dunk contest. Michael Jordan. We have a Duke fan here. We have a Duke fan from North Carolina. Welcome, Duke fan. But Michael Jordan. 1988. Soaring magically through the air from the free throw line to defeat Dominique Wilkins. That's glory. 156,000 American, Canadian, and British troops on 7,000 ships crossing the English Channel in one day to storm the beaches of Normandy and save the world. That's big and grand and glorious. And on and on and on we could go. All of these things are big and impressive. Displays of great strength and skill. We understand glory. We're all looking for glory. It's what you're looking for on your phone. It's what you're looking for on social. Look at media. We get glory. Jesus says, I'm going to get glory. I'm going to die. It's It's insane. This is why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, calls the cross a stumbling block and foolishness to the world. Cicero, great Roman philosopher, a hundred years before Jesus, said the cross was so horrible that the word shouldn't even be named in polite society. It was forbidden to crucify a Roman citizen. It was so terrible. He said that the cross should be removed from a decent person's very thoughts, eyes, and ears. Seneca, another Roman philosopher, alive during the time of Christ, agreed. And he actually wrote these words. Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away on the cross in pain, dying limb by limb, letting out his life drop by drop rather than any other quick death? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree? That's our word. Can any man be found willing, wishing, desiring to be fastened to that accursed cross? Yes. Yes, here. As we see Christ not only willing to go to the cross, but glorifying in going to the cross. Old, rugged instrument of death, and not just death, but brutal, bloody, slow, torturous death. There aren't many deaths worse than the agony of the cross. Christ is saying that, me, the King, on that is glory. Here's where you see my power. 
Here is where you see my greatness. Here is where you see my majesty most manifest. Here is God's transcendence and beauty and goodness and everything most clearly revealed in my death on a bloody cross. That's glory. And that's unexpected. That's still hard for us to get our minds around. That's why we still foolishly tend to seek glory elsewhere. Because we still don't quite get how this can be glory. And we still don't quite want this for ourselves. But Jesus says very clearly in 24 that the way to life is death. But think about that again. Why? Always ask why. Why is that true? Why does life come only through death? And why would the king be coming to die? It makes no sense. Unless that death is doing something. Unless that death is necessary for some reason. And we know the answer. We are the answer. Sin can be the only answer. Our sin, the sin which is death. It is because of us and because of our sin that now the way to life can only be through death. And that is the way that Christ the King has come to travel. In verse 32, he's going to talk about being lifted up. Again, it's beautiful how John does this. It sounds like glory. But then John's going to explain what Jesus means by being lifted up in verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Lifted up is glory language. Jesus is using lifted up as cross language. And if you keep looking ahead to verse 38, you'll see John there in verse 38, quote, from Isaiah 53, 1. And I mentioned last week how when the New Testament references a verse in the Old Testament, it is often referencing the whole context of that reference. So for now, let me get a little bit of a plug in here and let me encourage you to come to Sunday school next week. I have been tasked with the wonderful but impossible responsibility of expositing the great Isaiah 53 effectively. I was sitting in Sunday school this morning thinking, how can I give 53 to Peter? Like, I really want Peter to do this. How can I give it to him? I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do it. Isaiah 53. Come. Because it's all about what we're talking about here. And we're going to look at it in great detail. But I said that this whole section, the rest of John 12, is all about the fact that the coming king is the dying king. And that's what John, or Isaiah 53 so beautifully and brutally explains to us. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. It was the will, the wish, the desire of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. He poured out his soul to death. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Behold your king. This is who he is. Your dying king. Your dying to save king. We just sang it. You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may Estimate the thing that Christ has come to do. His sole mission and purpose is entirely and only because of our sin. 
our sin that we so minimize and ignore and just act like it's just not that big of a deal. Our sin that we so tend to focus on how awful people are out there so that we can feel a little bit better about the sin that is in here. Our sin that is an attempt to be God ourselves. That's what sin is. Our sin that is an attempt to un-God God and to murder God. We just think way too little and lightly of our sin. But as a rejection of and rebellion against the Creator God of all glory, the good God, perfect in love and kindness, there is no comparable crime. We think of the worst thing, the worst crime, the worst injustice. None of it compares to simple unbelief, simple refusal and rejection of the God who made us and gave us life. We've all experienced that. When you are rejected, when someone calls your goodness into question, when someone says that you're not trustworthy, says that they want no relationship with you, you are rightly hurt and offended. And you're not all that good. I'm not either. I'm not that trustworthy. And I'm not that good. So they're probably right. But God, He is perfectly good. And we have all totally rejected Him. You're not good, God. You know, I just don't even think you're that trustworthy, really, God. You know, I don't really actually want relationship with you, the God who is life and relationship. And he is rightly and justly offended. His justice demands that he punish the worst of sins. We want murderers justly punished. Our problem is that we don't believe that we are the worst of murderers. As we have attempted to murder God himself with our sin. That's why the wages of sin is death. That's why God's judgment of sin will be so indescribably terrible because the rejection of the all-glorious and good God is so indescribably terrible. Again, plus, I mean, I say this a lot, but it's just simple. You reject the God of life, you accept death. That's simple. You reject where life comes from, you receive death. That is what we deserve. And that is why Christ has come. That is why Christ dies. The offended party, God Himself, the Son, the King, coming to save us from Himself by giving Himself for us. It's amazing. Something must be done about our sin that demands a death payment. Christ Himself comes to pay that death payment for us in our place. Listen, that's what this is all about. That's why the death of Christ is also the glory of Christ. The coming king is the dying king. The crucified is the king. What love? What active, our good seeking love? What a display of self sacrificial, substitutionary service. The all glorious Son of God comes down and lays down his life. To rescue his all sinful people. Glory. That's glory. Life. Our life through his death. This is the fundamental basic principle of life and the Christian life. A disciple is entirely dependent on the death of the king. This is what creates our life by him paying for our death. You are not and you cannot be a disciple if you do not have this. 
If you have not been born again, if you have not, by the grace of God, been united to this Christ, made new, and then responded in repentance and faith. A faith that desires this King. Isn't it at least a little more clear now why this Christ is so desirous? There's, there is, there's no other love like this. Nothing ever like this has ever happened. Do you desire Him? Do you know Him? Are you His disciple? It entirely depends on His death. It's His death that makes His disciples. And that's point number three. Disciple. A disciple is dependent also on the death of self. Short today, a whole sermon next week. For one time in my life, I actually had a long point three, but I just cut it and made it a whole other sermon. So we're going to do it. We're going to look at this next week. Jesus, in verse 24, is teaching us a truth about himself that is also then a truth about ourself when we become his. Now, of course, this principle applies to him in a unique way. Only his death is a sinner-saving death. But look at how he moves directly uh, from that into applying this general principle to us, his followers, in verse 25. Look at 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And and it's, it's this verse... It's because this is so important, so fundamental to what it actually means to be a disciple of Christ, that I want to take another week to look just at verses 25 and 26. We've so cheapened and devalued what it means to follow Christ, and in so doing, what we end up actually doing is cheapening and devaluing Christ himself, our saving by dying king. And it is he, this good and glorious king, that says that whoever loves his life will lose it better make sure we know what that means and what that looks like. We should be very concerned to listen to the one that we say we follow tell us what it means to follow him. This this isn't the only place that he says something like this. It seems that this is something that he's teaching on and emphasizing repeatedly. Consider two spots in Matthew. We read one of them already. Let me read for you briefly from Matthew chapter 10. You can turn there. If you would like, I didn't get the page number, but you can find Matthew. Just go uh, to your left a few pages. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. I want you to really hear these words. These are the words of the Lord. This is Christ himself telling us what it means to follow him. Matthew 10, 37. Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Flip ahead back to Matthew 16, where we were earlier. Matthew 16, just a couple pages. We won't read the whole thing we read. Let me just read for you 24 through 26. Look at Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus again, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world 
and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? These are weighty words. Three times in Matthew 10, Jesus describes someone as not worthy of me. Not something we talk about much. He also says they're the same thing we just read in John 12. Whoever finds his life will lose it. John 12, whoever loves his life will lose it. Church, we, we have to hear this. For we are often way too like the world. We dangerously love the world. We need to be aware of how much of the world and its ways creep into churches. Especially these days as the world has a direct line to our brains, to the phones that we carry around constantly and stare at constantly and consume constantly. And what is it that we are generally consuming with those phones? It's the world. We tend to be entertained by the exact same things that the world is entertained by. We tend to think and speak and interact in the exact same way that the world does. And that shouldn't surprise us as we are constantly taking it in. Constantly listening to it. Psalm 1, the very first psalm. Input is everything. We become what we behold. We become what we look at. We look like what we listen to. And that is all too frequently the world. The world of which Jesus says, if we love our life in this world, or if we love the world, as John will put it in his first epistle, we lose our life. And so what is the one main message that the world has on repeat? The world has one message that it is doing everything it can to drill into your brain. Do you know what that one message ultimately is? It's self. That's the message of the world in one word. Self. Love the self. Seek the self. Find the self. Just like two weeks ago with Judas, we argued that there's ultimately only one idol. You're ultimately either worshiping only God or self. And the world is aggressively encouraging you and affirming you in the worship of self. It's been recently called the, the age of authenticity. or It's been described as uh, the rise of expressive individualism. This increasingly prevalent idea that you find your meaning in life, your purpose, your identity, and your happiness within. Look within, look to yourself, and then whatever you see within yourself, whatever you find in your heart that you desire, express that true self and live. This is is everywhere. It's the air that we breathe. We're so used to it that it's probably even hard to understand what the problem is. But look at verse 25 again. There's something important in verse 25 that is somewhat lost in translation. Look, I need you to track with me on this part. Look, look at 25. We read, read it again. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You see, there's three lives there. And so we naturally just assume that all three of those lives are the same word. They're not the same word in the Greek. The first two are the same. The third is an entirely different word. Last night I had giant Vera asleep on my chest at the reception last night. 
It was wonderful for an hour. She's oppressed against me and I'm covering her ear so she doesn't go deaf at age six months. But at the same time, as I'm holding giant Vera, I was lamenting that she's feeling less and less like a baby. Is baby Zoe in here? Zoe's not in here. So I was holding Vera. I was also looking at beautiful, tiny little Zoe. And I was thinking, oh, that's actually still a baby. <laughs> she still looks like a baby. What, what a precious little life. For that is what the name Zoe means. Life. And that's our third word in our text. Where you see eternal life, it's Zoe. And that's what we all want. That's the word that Jesus uses when he talks about coming that we may have fullness of life. The divine life. That's purpose. That's identity. That's happiness. And Jesus says he's the one that brings it. Zoe. But the first two lives in verse 25 are a different word. Not Zoe. But suke or psyche. This is the word from which we get our, our word psychology. And that word definitely can and does mean life. But the fact that John is choosing two different words signals to us that he probably wants us to understand these somewhat differently. Look down at verse 27. Look at 27. The reality of what is to come. The unimaginable horror of a hell's worth of suffering in mere moments begins to settle on Jesus. And Jesus says this, Now my soul... It's troubled. It's the same word. It's the same word as our two lives in the beginning of verse 25. We've already read from Matthew 10 and 16. In 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who cannot destroy both soul and body in hell. Same word. Suke. Matthew 16, 25 again. I, you know, go back again. Look at this, because this is neat. 822. I wrote the page number down this time. Matthew 1625, page 822. I want you to see this. I think this is important. If it's not, just humor me. Look at verse 25. We already read it. Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. All right, that's the same word from our verse. That's suke. Translated life in verse 25. But, keep reading. It's like the number one hermeneutic strategy. Keep reading. Look at verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Those two souls, it's our same word. It's the word suke. Life, life, soul, soul. It's all the same word. The suke is the soul. The soul is the self. So now go back and read John 12, 25 now. Jesus says, whoever loves his soul slash self loses it. And whoever hates his soul slash self in this world We'll keep it for eternal life. My third charge to Sam at the wedding yesterday was this. Sam, die for your wife. Die to self. That's just this principle applied specifically to marriage. That's just what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is one who has died to self. 
A disciple is dependent on the death of the self, for the self is sin. That's all that sin is. Sin is simply selfishness. We were created to image God, to be like Him, outwardly oriented around Him. Sin was the inward turn to self. Sin is self. And yet, this is the very thing our world is encouraging and affirming. And yet, here we see that it is the very thing that Christ is discouraging and condemning. It cannot be both. They're mutually exclusive. It's one or the other. And I think that many of our problems come down to this. I know that many of my problems come down to this. I'm still listening to the world more than I think that I am. And thus I'm still loving the self more than I think that I am. Still prone to insist on the self more than I think. Still somewhat believing that I will find life within as I assert that self and the desires of that self. But it doesn't work. It just makes us more miserable. For it is not where we were designed to look. It is not what we were designed to live for. And thus this inordinate obsession and focus on self takes our focus off of where it was designed to be. On Jesus Christ. On the dying Lord of life. On the one who gave his life that I might live. Why would I ever... If he is all that we saw in verse 2, why would I ever want to give my attention to and live for myself when I can have that? When I can have him? Why would I want to look to and live for that which left to itself is sin itself? The sin which is death. The sin which separates. And so it's because of sin that self must be displaced. Self must die. The endless, shameless focus on self must be replaced by an eternal, saving focus on Christ. I think this is where we so often struggle. Where's our focus? What are we living for? This is why a disciple is dependent on the death of the self. This is why also though that death of self is actually life. <laughs> Because in the dying of that self, we're returned and restored to the God who is our life. And that then begins to manifest itself in an entirely different sort of life. Not like the world. It's going to be different. Set apart from the world. Not loving and living for all the same things. For the Lord has loved and lived and died again, died and lived again for us. And to be a disciple of Him who is everything will demand and require our Everything. But what we're going to see next week is that it's entirely worth it. As Christ closes and says that we have him with us. And that we get honor from the Father himself. I wish that excited me more than it does. Because again, that's, that's everything. Isn't it good to be honored and recognized and affirmed? Here's honor, recognition, affirmation from God the Father himself. Do you desire that honor? Do you desire Christ with you? For this is what a disciple is. A disciple desires the king. A disciple is dependent on the death of the king. And that death and desire will result in the disciple's death to self. Have you, are you, dying to self? Ask and consider honestly, who are you truly living for? Self or the king? Whose will are you seeking? Self's or the king? Where do you find joy? Self or the king? 
A disciple dies to self and lives to Christ. Great George Mueller, building schools, orphanages, caring for 10,000 orphans, all funded entirely by prayer. Mueller makes me uncomfortable because I'm so unfamiliar with so much of his experience. I'm learning from him. But Mueller was once asked, what's your secret? And his reply was, there was a day when I died. Died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to their approval or blame, even of brethren or friends. Died to everything because of Christ. And I I want that. I, I want to decrease so that Christ may increase. I want to die to the world and care nothing for its approval. I want to live entirely to and unto the Lord. For that is what it means to be a disciple of this infinitely desirous King. Let's close with a word of prayer and let us ask Him to help us desire Him and follow Him and live for Him. Pray with me. Father, please help me. Please help us now. Father, we are so consumed with self. We are so often focused on ourselves and so desirous of the asserting and the putting forth of ourself. They're often not even aware of it. I'm often not even aware of it. Father, help us to see. Help us to see sin for what it truly is in its rejection of you and affirmation of self in your place. Father, most importantly, please show us this Christ. May we see his glory demonstrated so clearly in his cross. May you show us how gracious and merciful and compassionate and kind you are in that cross and coming yourself to save us from yourself in Jesus Christ. Father, you have given us everything and yet we so often desire other things. Father, I simply ask that you would help us to desire Jesus. We know that we cannot create this in our own hearts. So we ask that you by your spirit, working through these words, your word would continue to build and grow a great desire and affection for Jesus. We ask this all in his name. Amen.